you know, so much of the book is around uh, some unhealthy spirituality in a sense of uh, anxious spirituality or, or shame-centered spirituality. And these are very real human emotions and our bodies are equipped to experience these things. And yet it doesn't mean we have to allow them to shape and define us. Um, so how do we know the difference between a healthy relationship with anxiety and shame and an unhealthy relationship with them? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and a generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Crispin Mayfield. He's a licensed therapist in Portland, Oregon, the co-host of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast, and the author of a new book, Attached to God. Crispin, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. So how are things in the City of Roses? Um, it is sunny this week, which is good because um, we got a new puppy on Monday, and uh, need to uh, revamp our whole backyard to make it ready for a puppy. <laughs> that's that's um, what kind of dog did you get? Uh, corgi. So nice. yeah, um, yeah. and yeah, that that is very rare in uh, Portland in March. Um, probably a lot of folks know that, but you can just expect rain until July fourth, basically. <laughs> That's when yeah. summer starts. 
I spent a week in Portland in, uh, in February and surprisingly did not have to really put on my winter coat a single time while I was there. So, uh, oh, uh-huh. yeah, it was just, just last this month. So, uh, was beautiful it, city. Was it, was it sunny? Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly yeah. it was. Yeah. We, we call that the February fake out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully weather will be nice next May. That's when I'll come to Portland for graduation for my doctoral program and uh, oh, great. enjoy the tulips and all the uh, Oregon has to offer. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm always fascinated with people's sense of vocational calling. So, so why therapy? Um, yeah, I started out in pastoral ministry. Um, pastoral ministry program, uh, you know, in Bible college and, uh, started doing that. Um, I was about a year in, and then, um, I had to take the preaching class and I was like, oh, I do not want to do this. (laughs) I want to, uh, talk to people and engage with people and engage in relationships. But, um, if you're going to make me get on stage and talk to people, I don't want to do this. And, um, I think that really triggered something to think, well, you know, of, of course there are pastors that, um, you know, that really is what they do day to day, but it just made a lot of sense to look into therapy um, because that's a lot of talking to people and caring for people. And so um, made that switch early on and um, finished my uh, Bible and theology degree with a minor in psychology and went on and got my master's. And um, I really enjoy it a lot. It is not a boring job uh, by any means. And um, I get to hang out with people all day. So I really enjoy that. I think a lot of people would say that pastoral ministry will send people to therapy, but maybe not necessarily um, <laughs> go into therapy themselves. So, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, we could probably do an entire podcast conversation around this but how has how has your work been affected by the pandemic um yeah i remember when it first started i um i moved some of my clients to just seeing them on zoom pretty early um just to you know kind of say like all right well i'm going to try to reduce risk um but you know it feels like there's so many clients especially the couples that i see i see a lot of couples where i thought i just I want to be able to see people in person. I don't want to do it over a screen. Uh, very quickly, it became apparent that uh, that was going to be the only option. And actually, it's worked out fine. And um, I've just been really grateful for the ways that it's made therapy way more convenient for people. Um, you know, they don't have to worry so much about childcare or uh, getting across town to my office. Um And so I've really appreciated that part. It took me a while to get used to looking at a screen all day, but, um, but it's, it's been good. And I actually think um, a lot of us in, in the therapy world are thinking that it's here to stay. Um, I think there will be people that'll go into the office, but my guess is that, you know, even if we get to a post pandemic place, my guess is 75% of my clients will say, yeah, I, I would rather just you know, call in from home or work rather than drive across town. That's fascinating, you know, because you think about, I wonder, you know, for you, do you feel like physical presence makes a difference in how you, uh, you know, provide therapy or how you provide feedback and insight to what people are, are dealing with? 
Yeah. So that, that was really my hesitation. Cause I was, I'm trained in emotionally focused therapy, which really is focused a lot on paying attention to body language and presence. And um, we all have rolly chairs so that uh, during more vulnerable parts of the session, you can kind of scoot in a little bit um, and, and be present and, and create some sense of uh, co-regulating emotions together. Um, and so I was worried about that, but what I found is um, that there are ways to communicate across a screen and with my couples, I make sure that I can see both of them um, in their full body language, because when it comes to couples therapy, that's a lot of what's going on is paying attention to, um, you know, this partner saying this, how's the other person responding? I want to know how their body is responding to this information, because that helps us make sense of what's going on between them um, with with couples. Uh, there's some statistics that 80% of communication is nonverbal. So um, if you're going to be a good couple therapist, you got to be able to see what's going on. So maybe say, can we have the wide angle lens for this conversation today? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah I need, and you know, what's really funny is that um, some, sometimes uh, one partner will be talking and the other partner will move like slowly move the camera, so, you know, the computer. So they're out of the screen, like with some sort of idea of like, well, they have the spotlight they're talking right now. It doesn't matter, you know, but you know, I say, Hey, I, I need to see how you're, yeah. what, what's going on with your face as she's telling me this, or he's telling me this. So yeah. I, I need to see that wince and pain, that roll of the eyes. Uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, they might be telling me this and I'm hearing it this way, but I need to know how you're hearing it. So, well, you've got a fascinating uh, book out that connects, uh, obviously your work as a therapist, but also, um, your, your journey as a follower of Christ and a, a little bit of the pastoral care ministry you've done. Um, you know, the book is attached to God. This work examines some deep emotional feelings and thoughts about God, God's presence in our life. And ultimately correlates to how we relate to others. You wrote, amid the turbulence of adolescence, instead of providing needed stability, my relationship with God became a source of heartache and shame. I presumed something was wrong with me, and my best bet was to try to be better me, someone more worthy of God's nearness. Walk us through the inspiration behind this book. Yeah, the really for me, it was, for one, trying to figure out um, even on the other side of Bible college. And I didn't even mention this, but I didn't start out um, as a therapist after I graduated. Um, I got my master's in counseling and did three years of ministry in inner city Minneapolis. And even on the other side of all of that, it felt like I was trying so hard um, to, to keep God close. That was just sort of the way that I was operating, trying to do the right things. Um, and if that's the way that you're approaching God, you never get a chance to rest. And rest is a big part of our faith. Um, that's like one of the things that differentiated Israel from other nations, God instituted Sabbath. And so if you're in this faith where it's like, it feels like I have to work really hard to keep God close or keep connection, 
you got to ask is, you know, am I understanding this right? <laughs> What's going on? And um, the other part of it was that there in the research, um, what they would say is, you know, if a child is in this certain environment, um, there are these feelings that we can just anticipate. So if a child is in an environment where it feels like it's up to me to keep connection with my parent, I we can expect that that kid is going to feel both anxious and resentful. And so for me, it was like, oh, yeah, well, this makes sense then that I feel anxious and I feel tired and I even feel resentful um, because I've been told in these different ways that it's up to me to keep my connection with God. And so it really normalized a lot of that for me and, and showed me how oh yeah, this is like with the way that God created us, this is what humans do when when these are the terms of the relationship. If there isn't this deep security that no matter what you do, no matter where you end up, I'm going to be here for you. If that's not present, um, then there's naturally going to be these feelings of insecurity. You know, at the same time, so much of what you're describing about your adolescent understanding of God is similar to what many experience that, that grew up in the evangelical um, movement. Do, do you think it has more to do with our adolescent cognitive emotional development or more to do with the way God is being presented through the church? Yeah, I think, I think it has a lot more to do with the way that God is presented. And um, I like thinking about myself as an adolescent because I can look back and see, you know, I, I thought I was committing these horrendous sins. I thought I was um, trying really hard to be a good kid. And I can look back on myself as a teenager and be like, you were just trying really hard. <laughs> you know, like you were just a teenager. You were not an evil person. Um you know, you're not a horrible person. And yet it felt like um, at that time, it felt like, yeah, I, I'm not worthy of love. And so I think thinking about that, I can have a lot of compassion for myself. And recognizing that this is the experience of so many of us in the church. And I think what happens is that we talk about God's unconditional love. And then we get worried, <laughs> like if God's love isn't unconditional, what's going to keep your behavior in check? What's going to keep you from going down this path or that path? And so um, a lot of times in the church, we've added these caveats. Um, so God loves you, but, or, you know, God loves you so long as, um, and it, you know, we, we, of course say God's love is unconditional. But we add in these little ifs, ands, and buts. And for those of us that have this insecurity, we're going to focus in on those things. We're going to pay attention to, okay, like if there is a way to fall out of God's love, I need to know what it is, you know? And if you look, um, you'll hear it. You'll, you'll, it might not be the main me message in the church, but there's someone out there saying, you know, kind of whispering to the side about, the limits of God's love. 
Yeah, I mean, biblically and theologically speaking, you can read the Bible and come away with the conclusion that God is wrathful, vengeful, Mm -hmm. full of hatred towards humans and ready to destroy us at the drop of a hat. And if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Jesus, right? And at the same time, you can also read the Bible to see that God is generous and loving and provisionary and hopeful of our ability to rise above human's capacity for hatred and violence and inequity and injustice by following the way of Jesus. So, mm-hmm. so cognitively and emotionally speaking, um, why do some people subscribe to one understanding of God over the other? I think that it has a lot to do. I think there are so many answers to that question. And I think that there are these clear pictures of God's wrath throughout scripture one of my favorite things about doing this research was to go back and look at those things and, and do some uh, reading. There are a few scholars that I really enjoy. Um, Brueggemann, of course, being one of the you know premier Old Testament scholars. Um, but looking at these patterns that we see where God has, um, you know, threatens wrath, and then he says something like, And then, you know, then I remember what you were like as a baby and with your cheek against my chest. And, um, and so I think that's a, for me, that's been a good picture of God is, yeah, those wrathful passages are there. um, And yet God's compassion wins out. And it really has a lot to do with um, how we've been trained to read the Bible, what we've been trained to pay attention to the other thing though and this comes out in my book is that um every theologian has their own history and we tend to assume this person is just straight up interpreting scripture and um and that's you know we're fallible human beings and the things that feel right to us a lot of times are from our our personal experience and so um if we grew up in a family with a a parent that is um you know really judgmental and harsh and maybe even abusive um it's really easy to read scripture and be like oh yeah that resonates i think that's what god is like at least there's a part of god that's like this and then the good news is that jesus saves us from that wrath um billy graham is a great example of that um he grew up with a pretty harsh father and early on in his ministry he in one of his sermons he said the gospel is like this the gospel is um uh, father asks his son, go out to the um, go out to the wood pile, get a piece of wood for me. The son is engrossed in a novel, doesn't notice. Father gets irritated and is like, you need to go now. And the son then responds and says, I'm out of here, slams the door, um, leaves, comes back two weeks later and says, you know, father, can I come back in? And the father, this is the phrase he uses, the father's face softens for a moment and then says, you can come in as long as you go get the wood that I asked you to get in the first place. (laughs) And what strikes me about this is we think of Billy Graham as being, you know, someone that like just, just simple gospel message, right? Like something most people would agree on. 
And yet here he's, he's telling this story that's very similar to Jesus's story, the prodigal son. And yet the father in this story sounds much more like Billy Graham's father than it does the father and the prodigal son story. And just all that to say that, you know, we, again, we're fallible humans. And so we tend to read scripture in the ways that, um, that makes sense to us and relate to our own experience. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. Did you know that CBB offers every participant an opportunity to create a comprehensive financial plan with a certified financial planner at Empower Retirement, free of charge? Learn more about completing your financial plan at churchbenefits.org backslash financial planning. As an incentive for our ordained participants, CBB will apply $500 to your retirement account when you complete a financial plan. It's a small, grant-funded way we can invest in your future. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefit services, and financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. There's some fascinating um, chapters in the book that I kind of want to digest um, a little bit together. At, at the heart of the book is this conversation around attachment science. So first, define it for us. Yeah, so a lot of people think about attachment styles, and that's a big part of attachment science. But the heart of it is basically that we as humans need someone else in our life to go to, um, to help us feel secure in the world. We are, you know, one very uh, scientific way of putting it is we are um, herd creatures, right? We're uh, we live in herds, and that's that's kind of intuitively how we live. Um, and so we have this drive to connect with at least one other person that helps us feel safe and secure. And so we will do whatever we can to keep that connection. We will um, we have this incredible drive, even more than food or shelter. Um, or avoiding pain, we will seek connection. And attachment scientists have found that this drive for connection is one of the strongest human drives that we have. And so then you go from there to say, all right, we have this strong drive for connection. What are the ways that humans get connection? And, and that's where attachment styles come in, where there are basically three or four primary ways that fall into these categories. But but the heart of it is, and you know, of course, this fits so much with Trinitarian theology, which is that uh, we are built 
we are created for a relationship and that is one of our deepest and strongest needs. How does, you know, take us a little deeper there. How does, how does this attachment science and attachment styles correlate to our understanding of God? So we, along with, you know, I mentioned we have a, a drive to connect with at least one other person um, and, you know, we started looking at this in childhood. So kids have this drive to connect with parents. Freud thought that um, babies love their mothers because they got milk. But what we found is that um, kids are not that utilitarian. Um, <laughs> it's not just about food or shelter. Um, it's a deeper drive to connect. And then we found out that with married partners um, in other long-term relationships, that same drive shows up. And then what we found is that this same drive shows up with God, even though God is invisible um, and we can't like run across the room to God or, um, you know, maybe get in a huge argument, although uh, some people have, including uh, people in scripture, it looks different and yet it shows up in our brains the exact same way. And so our brains have that same desire and drive for connection. And that desire and drive for connection is actually related to our survival system. And so what researchers have found is that it, if you are someone that believes in God and has um, you know, a relationship with God in the sense of, you know, I believe that God exists, uh, for most people, there's this drive to, to connect with God and, and we will do whatever it takes to keep that connection. And, um, and we do that in different ways. So, um, you know, that can show up in different ways, but we can look at even just, you know, the average faith community and, and sit back like a scientist observing, you know, monkeys trying to get close to their mom <laughs> and say, okay, well, what are the behaviors we see here that people do to try to get close to God? You know, you have prayer, you have quiet time, you have showing up to church, you have worship. These are all uh, proximity seeking behaviors is the term that we use. But these are all things that we do really to get this closeness and connection to God. And that drive is really strong and it helps us understand our faith life. It helps us understand that there are these things that we do because of this drive for connection and closeness with God. And then the other part of that is if we can't trust that we can just get that connection whenever we need it, we will turn to some other strategies that um, maybe help us feel close and connected, but they're not going to help us in the long run or they're going to wear us out. So um, thinking about a kid that, that feels like if I, if I let go of mom's skirt, she's not going to stick around. Um, that kid is just going to hold on to mom's skirt all day. And that means they can't go play in the playground. They can't explore the room. They can't meet other people. They're just going to cling on to mom's skirt and that's not going to work long-term. And similarly, if we have this approach to God that it's up to me to keep closeness with God. It's up to me, you know, like Billy Graham's story, like you got to do the right thing if God is going to let you in. Um, 
then we turn to these other strategies that really wear us out. And, and that's a lot of what the book is about is looking at what are the ways that we're trying to get connection with God and it works well enough, but it doesn't work good long-term. You know, so much of the book is around uh, some unhealthy spirituality, you know, in the sense of uh, anxious spirituality or, or shame-centered spirituality. And these are very real human emotions, and our bodies are equipped to experience these things. And yet, it doesn't mean we have to allow them to shape and define us. Um, so how do we know the difference between a healthy relationship with anxiety and shame and an unhealthy relationship with them? Well, when it comes to shame, what I find, because there is this element of conviction and researchers and authors like Brene Brown have talked about guilt versus shame. What I find in terms of shame is that if it's, and I'll, I'll add a little like personal narrative to this. I spent so much of my life thinking that any self-critical thought that came to my head was the Holy Spirit convicting me. And what was really life-changing for me was to recognize that when the Holy Spirit convicts, it is a liberating and life-giving experience. So um, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I think, sounds like, hey, I see you're doing this thing. It's hurting you. It's hurting other people. This isn't the good that I have for you. Let me show you a better way. Um, when we think about toxic shame or self-criticism, um, we hear things like, there you go. You messed up again. This is who you are. And this means that you are unworthy of love and belonging. And so on that shame piece, I think that's one of the, I think, you know, when we look at scripture, we can see that, um, that there is always an invitation into something that's more life-giving. That being said, you know, if we look at Jesus's life, we see people that don't take that invitation. Um, and they, there's some, within that, some guilt and shame and even maybe self-condemnation. But I think that, that um, healthy shame, if there is such a thing, um, is an invitation into, is a reflection on the way that I've been living that's not healthy and not honoring God and um, an invitation into a way that is. And then when I think about anxiety, that's a good question. What is, <laughs> what's a healthy relationship with anxiety? Um, I, you know, of course we need, we need some level of anxiety and worry in our life. That's a God-given emotion, like you said. Um, I need to have some level of stress. With God, it's hard to say um, what, you know, what that level of worry is, but I think I would connect it back to the shame piece. Um, you know, I, I, I want to be, uh, concerned if I'm going into the ways of death, um, the ways of sin and the ways of, you know, the oppressive systems of the world. Um, 
And if I'm, you know, going in the way of, of selfishness and I'm not going in the way of Jesus, um, I do want to be worried about that, but I don't want to be worried about the connection. And uh, something that I talk about in the book is, um, is that understanding even how Israel approached the law you know, ever since Luther, we've had this, and, and probably before, we've had this idea of, you know, the law was there to, um, to indicate belonging. So if you follow these laws, then you're in God's good graces. But um, what we find in scripture, and also um, some scholars like Stephen Bernhope is an example of, of someone that I quote in my book, um, who says, really, God gives the law in order to bless us um, as a gift. Um, God is saying, you're my chosen people. I love you. And here's how we're going to do life together. The Bible Project has a whole series on law that also talks about this. And so that's really from an attachment perspective, that's what a secure relationship looks like. So with my kids, it's not like, all right, you got to follow the rules or you're going out on the front porch and you got to leave. It's, hey, I love you. Nothing's going to change that. There might be need, some needs for boundaries sometimes. Boundaries are important. Um, but really, when we talk about your behavior, we're talking about how can I help us? How can your mother and I help us as a family live in a healthy life-giving way? How can we be respectful to each other? How can we uh, make it right, make things right when we've done wrong to each other? And that is so much of what the law is, including how do we take care of the most marginalized among us? And so when I think about like, what's that, what's, what's a, an appropriate level of anxiety there are ways that we behave that go to the way of death, um, not only for us, but for our community. But I don't think that we have to worry about being separated from God based on our behavior. So I don't think there's any room for worry in that part. One of the brilliant aspects of the book is that you, you know, talk about these unhealthy spiritual practices and these unhealthy attachments to our journey with God, but then you're providing people some of the powerful spiritual practices that have been around for centuries to help people work through some of their powerful emotions, such as lament and Lectio Divina. Obviously, you've written about some of these practices, but as a therapist, what have you found to be the most meaningful and why? So one thing that it's, I actually just met with my therapist before this, and, um, and we were talking about how powerful images are and um she has done more research than i have um she's been around a lot longer than i have if if you are if you're a therapist it's always nice to meet with a therapist that um has been in the field a lot longer than you she was talking about just the healing that images and metaphors can have on our brain and um, there are a variety of um, types of therapy right now that are bearing this out. Um, internal family systems, emotionally focused therapy are two um, that have a lot of research behind them that show that our brains 
if they're going to heal in a relational way, they respond so well to images and metaphor. And what I think is so neat about this is that we can look back through Christian history and know that, that God knows this about us. And so, you know, God doesn't just expect Israel to remember the things that God has done and just hold those in their heads. God says, build a monument to remember my kindness and my compassion. I think about Jesus at the Last Supper saying, do this in remembrance of me. And so to me, it, it, it connects there to say, yeah, as humans, we need experiential truth. We need, um, if things are going to heal in our brain, we're going to become more trusting. Um, if we're going to feel more connected to God in our community, having some important metaphors, which I, I, maybe the, the best example of this is that Jesus tells stories the whole time. Um, he doesn't tell systematic theology. Um, he says the kingdom of God is like this and tells these beautiful stories that, and, and you know, in uh, often beautiful, always poignant and powerful. And that is sort of the right hemisphere of our brain is connecting and relating to that. And then I think about Christian history, whether it's, um, you know, the mystics often would talk about um, life-giving pictures of God. Um, we, I mean, that's something that I think is missing in the evangelical church. I understand that we wanted to get rid of those things that felt like dead traditions, but we also know that our brains need the concrete. And so even things like a liturgy that repeats every year, um, that can land in our brain in the same way that um, being put to bed every night as a kid uh, creates a sense of security in our brains. So there's, I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg, but there is so much there around metaphor and imagery and experience that heals our brain. And I believe that the, the church has been practicing that for years for centuries, um, these healing practices. And then sometimes we, we have to correct course because not the same thing works for everyone in every generation. But that for me was the most important thing about writing the book was to say, hey, here are these spiritual practices and the research that the neurobiology also bears out that these are healing things for your brain. Mm. So how does a closer and healthier connection with God ultimately lead to a healthier relationship with others? So we don't need research to prove things, but one thing that has actually really stood out to me in, in thinking about discipleship in the church and um, what this means for pastors is that we find that those who have a secure attachment have this security to believe that no matter how I behave, I'm going to be loved no matter what. They are more likely to make ethical decisions. They are more likely to be empathic and tuned into others' needs. Um, so it's just really neat to think about when we have our needs met, when we are told you know, there's nothing you can do that separate that could separate you from the love of God. 
we actually walk in the kingdom and we walk in the way we're more likely to walk in the way of Jesus. And, um, and this just fits with what we see throughout scripture. We know that it is God's love and compassion that transforms us. And yet um, sometimes without even this being an uh, explicit message or, or an intentional message, a lot of times we approach God like we approach so many other relationships in our life, which is, you know, you'd better behave or you're going to lose your belonging. And what we know from a psychological standpoint is that that doesn't work. It maybe works in the short term, but um, having that threat of abandonment or disconnection hanging over our head usually just leads to secrecy for one. Um, but it also puts us on edge and it actually makes it harder for us to make wise decisions. It makes it harder for us to regulate our emotions um, and it makes it harder for us to be empathic. And so, yeah, being able to feel secure with God actually leads us to more self-sacrificial living, which I think is just a, another one of those beautiful things where the the research lines up with what we hear over and over in scripture, which is that the fruit of the spirit comes from that relationship with God. It doesn't come from us trying harder. It doesn't come from threats of abandonment. It comes from being loved. What's your hope for your readers? My biggest hope is that people will read this and think, oh, this is this emotional dynamic that I've had with God that I couldn't put a finger on. They've, they've done some research around um, what people think about God and what people feel about God, <laughs> sort of our doctrinal statements versus our experience. And what they found is that although people generally had a, a positive experience of God in, the, in this one study, um, it was not nearly as positive as they thought they should think about God. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they would say things like, I know that God is forgiving. I know God is compassionate. But when they sort of rated the scales about have you experienced God's compassion or God's forgiveness? Um, it was a different story. And there are really good reasons for that because of these psychological dynamics um, and the different messages were given. And so my hope is that people can read this and say, oh yeah, I maybe I didn't even realize that I was resentful for how hard it feels to keep in God's good grace, God's good graces. You know, I know that I'm saved. I know it's not by works, but I still feel like I have to try so hard to keep God close. And yeah, maybe I've even felt a little bit resentful of that, but I didn't know how to put that into words until now. So that's been my hope. And I've already gotten some feedback along those lines. And the reason that I hope that is because that was what attachment science was for me to be able to put to words the feelings that I had in this relationship and the ways I didn't feel secure. And starting there, when you say, yeah, I don't feel secure, <laughs> um, 
then you can have these honest conversations with God and invite God in to heal these parts of the insecurity. Our guest is Crispin Mayfield. The book is Attached to God. Learn more about Crispin's work at crispinmayfield.com. Crispin, it's been great to talk with you. Um, thank you for creating a, a wonderful resource to equip people to think deeply about the intersection of their theology, orthopraxy, and psychology as it leads to better emotional, cognitive, and spiritual health. Thank you so much. I, I always appreciate the chance to talk about attachment and faith. So I really appreciate being asked and uh, invited on today. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.